Hi, my name is Brendan Schuchart, and welcome to the Novus Homo podcast, the first in what I intend to be a weekly series of conversations about the past, present, and future of queer culture. For my first episode, I'm joined by Dana Van Gorder. Dana is currently the executive director of Project Inform, a nonprofit that I sit on the board of, but he's also a tireless public servant who has been involved in San Francisco politics since the earliest days of the AIDS crisis. I wanted to talk to Dana first, not just because of the breadth and depth of his involvement with gay culture and the fight against HIV, but also because this weekend marks the 30th anniversary of Project Inform, and uh, it just kind of felt right. Dana and I have a far-reaching conversation that touches on prep, condoms and porn, bathhouses, Treasure Island media, the early days of the AIDS crisis, and the future of the gay community. But without any further ado, here's Dana. Call now being recorded. There we go. <laughs> like I said, not easy to use. Um, so, the project is called the Novus Homo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how uh, well-versed you are in Roman history, but... A novus homo is what they called someone in the the old Roman Republic. It's somebody who had joined the senatorial class who uh-huh. no member of their family had ever been a uh-huh. senator before. Uh-huh. And um, the new man. Some of my favorite figures from Roman history are, are novus homo. They happened times when, you know, usually times of crisis, like when there was a, a war, or in times... You know, they started popping up like mushrooms towards the end of the Republic when the social order was breaking down. Rome had beaten all of its enemies, and it kind of created all this room for new up-and-coming people with fresh ideas who were able to, like, make the system work for them. And I feel like we're in a similar time, <laughs> and mm-hmm. where the old, kind of the old order and prejudices are breaking down, and it allows for a black president and a fir- our first lesbian senator, you know, because like we are in a, we are in one of these times. And right. I'm... Although the old really, order is clutching on for <laughs> dear life. Right. And <laughs> so we are in this time where people who never had access to power now have access to power. And at a time when the old order is crumbling and, like, the old power structures are holding on desperately, at the same time, just within the gay community, we're in this, like, weird estuary between equality and then the end of AIDS, which feels very much like it's on the horizon. And I'm really curious what it means to be a gay man in a time when our two biggest defining cultural realities are either gone or, or... in the process of evaporating. Um, I want to know what it means to be a gay man when um, you can live openly and and you don't have to live in fear of HIV. Right. Well, it's an interesting question. Because, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, everybody's happy that you know, we have same-sex marriage and we have we can be in the military and we can do all of these things that we weren't able to do before, I mean, some things were more fun when they were illegal. Um, <laughs> you know, the sort of the transgressive nature of being gay is a lot of fun. Um, sure. But now, but now that uh, we're much more equal, will the will gay culture still continue to exist on some level, or are we just going to become 
completely sort of homogenized. And then, um, you know, we're the beneficiaries of real bad, um, mm-hmm. you know, the big da- the dance parties. And they, it's interesting. They brought uh, us together. They brought the various beneficiaries together not too long ago to kind of say, gee, you know, there are a, a lot of transformative things happening in the community now, and it's not exactly clear where we're headed. And they they want to sort of act more like a foundation rather than just kind of, you know, producing dance parties. I think they're contemplating how to have kind of more of a role in helping to decide where the community as a whole is going and what its needs are and stuff. So, I mean, it is obviously an interesting time to kind of take stock of all of that. And I, I suggested to them that, that it would be interesting to rent Norse Hall and kind of have a series of conversations about all of that. Where are we? Where do we want to go? What part do we want to play in the social fabric of the city or the state and the nation in the future? But you know, nobody else seemed interested in it. So I was like, okay, fine. Really? <laughs> yeah. I think that's too bad. I think it's about time maybe that the queer communities sat down together in a kind of a congress and even if just within San Francisco and said, even if just where do we want to be? But you can play that role. <laughs> that's, that's why I'm here. Well, what's your ideal future look like? Like, uh, um, where do you, I mean, and then where do you see things going? Do you see it falling short of your ideal future? In, in, no, uh, you know, as has been said so many times lately, quoting Martin Luther King, it seems as though the arc of history points toward justice. And I am really shocked how fast the progress on these issues has occurred. I mean, I wouldn't have guessed that same-sex marriage would occur th- this quickly and this early. I thought that it would have taken much longer, a- as with a lot of other issues. And then I'm also amazed at how little pushback there really has been. I mean, on gays in the military, there was a little bit of pushback. And on same-sex marriage, there's obviously been some pushback, but not anywhere near on the scale that you might think that it might occur. So I just think it's remarkable. So... And, you know, given the the kind of obvious stuff of how, you know, younger generations are feeling about queer stuff, it seems as though inevitably, you know, we're going to be largely welcome in society, but not always, you know, largely as a result of religious stuff. Although, you know, if you look at what's sort of what's trending with religion in the United States, it's disappearing. And, yeah. uh, you know, the people who have major religious reservations about homosexuality are going to disappear too. So um, so I think, you know, by and large, we will resolve the HIV crisis. But, you know, I'm afraid that we won't resolve it for everyone for a while. You know, I still worry in particular about young men of color. But I think that for the most part, we will put HIV aside as as a major issue. And then uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what the sort of queer agenda will become. I assume it will be, you know, I I hope it would be for economic and social and health-related justice of everybody in the community. But it feels as though activism and the sense of community will diminish substantially. So I think there will be parts of queer life where a, a queer culture is really 
maintained, but it feels like it's all going to become a little bit more homogenous, which, you know, in some ways is good, but I kind of find a little bit boring. (laughs) (laughs) I think there will always be, you know, sort of edgy, fringy people who are doing really interesting things, but uh, by and large, it feels like we're just going to become pretty mainstream. I don't know if you're familiar with the writer Brian Lauder. He uh, mm-hmm. he writes for Slate primarily. He wrote a great essay this summer, and I believe the title is um, "I Was Born Homosexual and I Choose to Be Gay." And I think that there are a there's a huge chunk of gay men right now who just can't wait to just drop the gay homosexual straight people, basically. And um, I think more and more queer is becoming a, or gay, are becoming like a cultural signifier. Like I have heterosexual friends living in San Francisco who are totally immersed in queer or gay culture. All of their friends are queer or gay, and they think of themselves as queer. And Interesting. um, they are, you know, they are. <laughs> they, have no, they are attracted to opposite-bodied people, but they they have no interest in the traditional mm-hmm. straight thing. And I think, but there's a lot of people that want that traditional straight thing, and they are they're going to dive in with both feet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's at this point there's there's too much momentum behind queer culture. I don't. I don't we're not. If anything, that momentum would benefit by losing the the, the disinterested dead weight, you know, the people that, that <laughs> like the gays to, to like tell other gays to gay it down. Like well, I think we'll be we'll be better <laughs> off when they are where they really want to be. Everybody will be right. here. Well, I, I uh, hope uh, yeah, I hope that that sort of distinct you know culture continues to exist. I, I suspect it it will in in part, but. Maybe not quite as much as as we've known it in the past, but I also think you know we're always going to be different. So you know we're we're bound to have kind of our own distinct culture. But by, by and large, I, I think most gay people will end up being pretty mainstreamed, and then there will be you know kind of a thriving, interesting queer culture that still exists. But I don't. I'm not sure that the community is going to be as kind of politically involved as it has has in the past just because we've resolved a lot of these things and you can already see it i mean there are just a million ways in which you can tell that people aren't as active people don't react to things the way that they used to think things aren't quite as big a kerfuffle as they, as they used to be i mean just with project inform and hiv and the aids walk and all kinds of things it's like god you know if some of these things had happened 10 or 15 years ago, there would have been a huge thing going on about it. And now everybody is largely kind of silent and moved on. So It's funny that you should say that because I feel like when I came out in the late 90s, like in 96, nobody was talking about HIV at all except for... It's all around you and be very scared. Be afraid is all I was told. Just be afraid. And right. now, uh, with 
the introduction of preps, I feel like there is, at least in San Francisco, and I definitely am starting to see it here in Los Angeles, there is a conversation, like a nuanced, engaged, hopeful conversation that young guys are having about HIV. It hasn't just changed the discourse. Like, it has created the discourse. And mm-hmm. that's incredibly hopeful for me. And I don't understand why why there aren't tinker tape parades. Like, why why gay men aren't, yeah. you know, yeah. dancing in the street. Yeah. Um, it's true. I mean, it's uh, it's really revolutionized everything. But it hasn't revolutionized it in the way that a vaccine might, for example. Mm. I'm not sure exactly why. I, I think it's more complicated than if we simply had a vaccine and everybody could go do it and everybody would go do it, you know, including straight people. I mean, right. And and it would be sort of non-stigmatized. And I think maybe there's still, even though there's much less stigma, I think, around PrEP than there initially was. But I think people still view it as, oh, well, I'm doing this because my behavior isn't completely sterling. Right. I mean, some people are doing it just because they want to be, I'm always amazed, you know, like online or something, when you see tops who are doing PrEP, I'm like, well, if I were a complete, if I were a total top, I'm not sure why I would bother, but... But whatever. I mean, I think there are just those people who want to be ultra, 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 you know, cautious. And you know, and it is, a, and it is a big deal, and it is expensive. So it's not even as easy as just taking the birth control pill. You know, it's a big deal. So I think um, it's obviously going to be heavily embraced. I can see why people haven't been somewhat more enthusiastic about it. But I agree. It was a Peter Staley who said it. He was sort of pushing back against Larry Kramer and said, Jesus Christ, you know, if this had happened in 1985 right. or 1990, like we would be having people tickets. lined up around the block. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it would, which is true. Uh, we would have been yeah. like, you know, people would have been crying in the streets. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe it. And now, um, and, it, it, yeah, it's sort of interesting that there hasn't been a little more enthusiasm about it. But I think if there were a vaccine, one of these trials that's going on, um, there, then the ticker tape parade would, would definitely happen. I, uh, <laughs> and if nobody uh, else led it, we would. <laughs> one of the, the things that I'm, I'm really interested in right now is I feel like there is a sexual revolution in the making, like another 1970s maybe. And there's uh-huh. also this like it's a message coming from within the gay community that everybody should just get married, assimilate, become monogamous or semi monogamous. I actually had one guy on the internet basically say that um we, those of us who who aren't getting married and I am getting married, but those of us who aren't getting married are basically not doing your part to oh my. to uh wow, yeah, I was like it was. Uh, <laughs> Well, I've asked some of my, you know, friends who are in couples if they now feel pressure to be married, and they say, "Oh yeah." Um, and I'm not, I'm not completely surprised that everybody would say, "Gee, you know, you have the right now, and how wonderful is that?" And so, why aren't you, why aren't you married? And it's like, well, there are a lot of reasons why people, including straight people, decide that have a, a relationship and not get married. But I think there is pressure. I think maybe there, I, I wonder if there isn't then, if you're queer and married, I wonder if there isn't 
also pressure now to have children, too. You don't even have to be married. So my mom is really looking forward to grandchildren. There's already pressure for me to have kids. Like, my mom wants those those adopted gay babies so bad she can taste it. <laughs> yeah, and of course, I've always... <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, if people want to have kids, I think, I think that's fine, but I've always thought that part of the function of homosexuality in the ecology was to make sure that not everybody is breeding. If everybody's breeding, I mean, we're already screwed, but if we were... <laughs> so, you know, for us to all of a sudden be embracing having children, you know, I think is kind of a mixed bag, but people who want to do it, I think it's great. But, you know, it's like, God forbid it become like the 50s where, you know, gay people feel obligated to get married and or have children nobody should feel obligated to do anything yeah I've, I've, I've gone back and forth you know i love kids i used to teach preschool and um there's a part of me that feels like i would be a really good dad and there's a part of me that really wants to be a dad you know like just a i love kids <laughs> at the same time like i can barely keep myself my two dogs and my fiance alive <laughs> I, I don't know that I could like, like handle a, like a like a little crying eating poop machine. I don't know if I can handle it. It's <laughs> just one thing too many. Yeah, that's no, it's a it's a lot of work. And then I, and I worry. And I've had this conversation with plenty of friends. It's like I, I just worry about bringing a kid into the world at this moment when so much seems to be <laughs> in doubt. If the future looked brighter, or or if it it felt as though, you know, we were kind of really confronting in a meaningful way some of the big challenges that would be one thing, but it's just, uh, you know, the, the next 75 or 100 years don't necessarily look great. Of course, we're all uh, you know, relatively privileged and comfortable, and so we'll probably be all right, but, um, you know, you wonder... Uh, the the structural problems in our especially in our like government and in like international interactions seem so clearly just just broken it's disheartening but on the other hand socially I feel and culturally I feel like we've never in the history of humanity have have things just been as tolerant and as egalitarian as they are right now well that that's certainly true I mean I guess I guess I think largely of kind of you know environmental issues and um, oh we'll just all move to Canada it'll be great (laughs) (laughs) well if you have a Republican president and a Republican Congress I'm trying to figure out where I'm going (laughs) that's for sure Bye bye. Uh, it's, 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 it's gonna be beautiful in Alaska once uh, the polar caps. <laughs> We've been all over the place. Um, uh, can we double back and, and talk a little bit more about you? Like, um, where did you grow up, for instance? I grew up. Uh, well, I spent the first five years in in Los Angeles. I was born in Van Nuys. California, right in the valley, and uh, and then my uh, my father was uh, who worked for the Lockheed Missile and Space Corporation was relocated to Sunnyvale when they first established a plant here in like 1961, and I grew up 
I grew up in Sunnydale. When it was, you know, kind of the heart of, it was the heart of their, you know, heavily focused on aerospace and then switched to become the Silicon Valley. But of course it was also 45 minutes from San Francisco. So, you know, kind of a, a boring community <laughs> of itself, but there was plenty, there was plenty going on around it. Um, and by the same token, you know, when I was, uh, when I was young and starting to come out, it was surprising how much kind of gay stuff was going on in that area, you know, in the South Bay and San Jose and Palo Alto and uh, some of those little communities. I mean, there was a time when, you know, they all had bars and, and there was a certain amount happening and not everybody was sort of coming up to San Francisco. And it's interesting now, you know, apropos of what we've been talking about, that kind of all of that is gone and it seems as though everybody just comes up to San Francisco. So it was not, you know, as many places in the country go, it wasn't completely accepting of queer stuff, but it was hardly a super difficult place to grow up. And then by the time, I guess by the time I was in high school, I, I was in high school from 1974 to 1978. You know, interesting that that period kind of overlapped with Harvey Milk was running for office in the city and, you know, everybody was kind of aware of what was going on in San Francisco with regard to kind of queer stuff. And when did you yourself moved to San Francisco? I um I didn't move there until so then I, I went to college at uh Santa Clara University and stayed in the area and then lived in Los Gatos for a while and then when I uh not long after I graduated from college I met my husband for the next ten years. <laughs> Um, who lived in Santa Cruz. We lived in Santa Cruz for a while before moving to San Francisco in 19, I guess it was 1980. 1980. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. When did you take a job with the Department of Public Health? So, yeah, in, in 1980, when I, when I landed in San Francisco, I didn't have a job and I volunteered for Harry Britt, who was appointed to Harvey Milk's seat by Diane Feinstein. So I volunteered at City Hall, and then Barbara Boxer ran for the congressional seat from Marin County, and Harry and his political operation, which had been, you know, Harvey's political operation, uh, sort of sent me off to work on Barbara's campaign. And then when it was over, Harry's aide, uh, whose name was Bill Krause, who was an amazing guy, left Harry's office and went to work for Congressman Phil Burton. And Harry hired me uh, to work in his office. So, And then I worked for, you know, Harry on the Board of Supervisors for like nine years. And I didn't get to the Department of Public Health until I think I was there from like 1995 to 2000. So those years between 1980, I worked for Harry for nine years and then I worked on a couple of international AIDS conferences, the San Francisco one and one that was supposed to be in Boston. And then I came back from Boston. I worked for Carol Migdon on the Board of Supervisors for three years, and then I went off to the Department of Public Health. All of that is to say that, you know, the epidemic started when I was working for Harry. Ah. 
And how did you be, how did you become aware of it? I remember it perfectly. Uh, Cleve Jones came mm-hmm. in to see Harry and me and told us about the cases that Mark Conan and Paul Volverding and other people were seeing uh, and said, you know, hold your hats. Here we go. This could be bad. You know, and then obviously, you know, it just started to unfold and we were, you know, kind of talking to, you know, the gay and other docs in town about what was going on and, you know, sort of quickly began to do everything that we could to help. And we were, you know, obviously in a in a good position to sort of pitch in and begin to make things happen. Yeah. I'm very curious about this time. I grew up always being afraid of AIDS. Uh, it's very hard for me to imagine the time where it, it wasn't looming over my head. And I'm curious about that transition. I guess I want to know what it felt like. I know that's a, a weird thing to ask. Yeah. You know, like, uh, well, it was um, complicated. I, um, you know, just on a purely personal level, you know, it felt kind of foreign to me. So for better or worse, I had been kind of shy about coming out. I didn't have sex with a whole lot of guys. I I met Harold, and we were, you know, monogamous and pretty coupled up. And so I didn't feel any kind of level of personal risk. But then living in San Francisco and being very active in the community, you know, guys were just were just dying right and left. And I just, you know, I remember, especially very early on, when everyone was completely terrified, you'd go to a meeting and some guys felt an obligation to kind of let people know that they were sick and what was going on and that people needed to pay attention to it. And, and you know, it was just completely horrifying that you'd see these beautiful young guys who were sick and you knew that they were going to be gone in no time at all. So, you know, it was just catastrophic and it was huge. I mean, the numbers of, you know, obviously the numbers of people were just huge. And it was just completely transformative. And so, you know, not surprising that everybody found a way to pitch in in one way, way, shape, or form. We have uh, talked about this before. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, and we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. But, you know, there is a... a (laughs) Uh, according to according to public mythology, you are the person who closed the bathhouses in San Francisco. <laughs> I know. It's, I, yeah, I know it's. I know it's. I know it's a. Um, I know it's a yeah. much more complicated story than that. But uh, would you be interested in like? Yeah, it is about a little more complicated than that. Um, <laughs> um, well, you know, it was obviously a huge topic, and people, you know, there was this kind of period of probably, a, you know, the first couple of years where people wondered, well, what the hell should we do about this? It feels, you know, we've seen pretty clear that this was probably sexually transmitted, and people probably ought to be taking precautions, and this is kind of apropos of where we started the conversation about Dan. You know, Dan's thing has always been that we ought to be able to expect that businesses that are catering to our community, particularly the ones that are of us, that are owned by 
gay people should mm-hmm. be socially responsible. Mm-hmm. And so there was a group of us, and mind you, you know, when, when the whole thing started in San Francisco, and we went to the Department of Public Health because, you know, well before me there was another coordinator of lesbian and gay health services, and we went to her and said, uh, holy shit, you know, we need to start educating people and doing things. And she in particular said, no, you know, we're not really going to do that. You know, our community has started to enjoy some political advances and what have you, and and she was an African-American lesbian, and she sort of said, and, you know, this seems to kind of largely be affecting a bunch of comfortable white gay men, and so, you know, let's not be too, let's not overreact here. So, well, and then she, you know, years later, she went on to run various HIV organizations and everything, and she, everybody kind of, you know, widely considered her to be a hero. And it's like, hello, you know, we couldn't get her to lift a finger at the beginning. And so what that bred was the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence and the Harvey Milk, at that time it was the Harvey Milk Gay Democratic Club, said, well, fuck it, then we'll do it ourselves. And created some of the first educational booklets and what have you and started handing them out all over town. But one of the things that a group of us did was to go to the owners of the gay bathhouses and say, hello, are you prepared to really help us? And, you know, these are your customers, and if you care about them, you'll join us in an educational effort. And they said, fuck you. That's not what we're here for. And so, you know, as the problem got worse and worse, it wasn't that hard to say, well, if they can't participate in an effort to preserve their own community, then they ought to be closed. So, yeah, there was a group of us who, and I was hardly the only one, but there was a group of us that <laughs> stood up and said, <laughs> yeah, this just, this is just isn't acceptable. And this is unfortunately, you know, a concession that we need to make to trying to get this under control. And there was, you know, Bob Ross, who was the publisher of the Bay Area Reporter at the time. I remember the night before, I forget exactly, my memory is terrible, but I remember there was a group, we we were kind of organizing a sign-on of community leaders to say that, you know, reluctantly, we think that this needs to happen. And I remember, you know, obviously it was very controversial, and I remember sitting at Dick Tavish's house. <laughs> you know, he had worked for Harvey and was very involved in all of this stuff early on. And we were sitting at his house, and one by one, people were calling and saying, "Please take me off the ladder." <laughs> it's like you chicken shit. And then you know, we wound up with some people who signed the letter, and Bob Ross printed it. You know, like did a kind of enemy of Richard Nixon style enemies list in the paper saying, you know, these people are enemies of the community and blah, blah. But, you know, that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of how it unfolded. And and then, you know, there was a way in which it didn't, that none of that really mattered because Diane Feinstein was goddamned if she was going to allow them to continue to be open. And, and it wasn't just that Diane was prude or, uh, that she was homophobic or anything. I mean, we all hated her at the time for a, a lot of other reasons, but, you know, she had a lot of 
very close gay male friends, and they were dying right and left, too. Uh-huh. And she really stepped up to the plate to help. And I think as mayor, she looked at this and said, it's not going to happen under my watch. Right. So anyway, that's just, that's my version of the story. <laughs> thank you. No, thank you for sharing. <clears throat> and not not to go on too long, but to, you know, to fast forward, then there have been all these issues about, well, what to do about bareback porn. And, you know, in particular about the, I, I wouldn't say the Paul Morris's because there's really only one Paul, Paul Morris. There's but, only one Paul Morris, yeah. And, you know, when he made a video where there was a serodiscordant couple and this was before prep and all of that, it's like, well, what, you know, how, how do we feel about this stuff and how do we feel about the social responsibility of porn makers and what have you? And, and I think, you know, at that, at that time, I, you know, I brought some HIV prevention people together to say, well, has it gone too far? Is there anything we want to do? And everybody said, no, not really. We don't really know what we could do, but you can have a conversation with him. So Paul and I had some conversations about it and he, you know, he uh, sort of like, gee, could you help us with some education? Could you, could we at least say, guys, if you're going to try this at home, here's some things to know. Um, and he's like, no, you know, we're in the, we're in the business of creating fantasy for people and injecting any notion of reality, least of all HIV, into that, you know, is just a big boner killer and (laughs) and bad for business. (laughs) I'm a little fascinated by that that was his response because he clearly has a political message. Most yeah. porn is just that. It's just guys banging on camera. Almost definitely has a message. He has a point of view and he has a philosophy that he's promoting. Buy into it or don't. A celebration of wantonness, I guess. Not being mm-hmm. afraid of giving in. I don't know, I don't know how familiar you are with his body of work, but there was a video that came out. I think it's called Outlaws. It was filmed in Europe. But the, the marketing material had hashtag teenage Truvacor. And, like, of course, people were outraged, outraged. And then I realized, you know, it flipped the fantasy. If the fantasy before was just giving in to your carnal desires and not caring about the consequences, the fantasy is now in vulnerability that you um, can indulge in right. your carnal desires without spinning the chamber, you know, without the Russian relay. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. And I mean, I have seen a, a lot of his stuff and the only, you know, and <laughs> admittedly, it's a, most of it's pretty hot. Some of it kind of crosses the line. <laughs> the the thing about it is, yeah, well, so, you know, in the context of that whole conversation, there was the kind of obvious question, you know, which, which he asked and it, it's a, it's a fair question. Well, do we really know that bareback porn is influencing people's behavior and there's not a lot of data that proves that it is. I mean, you can kind of make some assumptions that you know, people see stuff and go, oh, yeah, I think I want to do that. Except, that it's, you know, his stuff, for most people, his stuff is so kind of out there that, like, most people aren't going to go to quite those lengths, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but he also makes a good point, which is, hey, wait a minute, you know, they're 
there are billions of dollars being spent on all of you people out there to to do that job. That's your job. My job is to make porn. Your job is to, it's like, well, I think maybe we could try to combine them somehow. <laughs> but he, yeah, but yeah. at least, you know, at least he was honest. It's like, nope, it would be bad for business, so I'm not going to do it. And the way we kind of started the conversation was, and I said to him, it's like, you know, this is what you're doing. I understand what you're saying, but it all seems a little bit cute when the rest of us then have to go out and, you know, go to Congress and go to the state legislatures and the governors and, and everybody and ask for shitloads of money. <laughs> To deal with this stuff, maybe we need to be just a little bit more adult about it. You know, we've, we've obviously never spent a whole lot of attention or uh, time and attention on that stuff. A because it's complicated, and B because it's you know just kind of a it's just kind of a loser. But you know, Dan persists in you know trying to at least get the hookup sites to to do something. There is, of course, this whole issue of you know condoms and porn and. <laughs> and we we have been somewhat involved in that. Project Inform at least ultimately decided that, you know, in terms of questions of OSHA regulations and what have you, that most of those schemes have involved mandatory testing. You know, there was what there was a bill in the state legislature a year, year and a half ago that involved mandatory testing and we said on that basis we have to oppose these kinds of schemes and in the context of treatment as prevention and prep it seems a little bit naive to demand that everybody or require that everybody wear condoms prevention is now a little bit more nuanced than that right yeah it's <laughs> it seems like yesterday's fight first of all and it, it, it and it seems just wrong-headed in every way it's like it, it, you can't make people use condoms who don't want to use condoms there's a wide range of tools available that can prevent the spread of HIV. Very vanishingly few HIV infections happen on porn sets. Um, right. It's very convincing that that rarely happens. The idea that condomless sex seen in porn uh, is going to lead to condomless sex in the bedroom is as silly as the idea that violence seen on TV is going to make teenage boys go out and be violent. Um, <laughs> right. But even if you just deal with, I mean, I think the cons and porn thing from, you know, OSHA is involved, not because they're trying to, you know, influence norms about condom use in a larger society, but simply as a worker safety issue. And, and even if you look at it that way, it's like, well, there are ways for employees to be safe other than simply using condoms. Well, why don't, why don't we wrap up this conversation right here? Very good. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. We did cover a lot of ground, and um, I really appreciate it. Okay. Oh, all right. Um, take care. Right. I will. Take care. Talk to you soon. Okay. I will Bye. do. Bye.